to 1 John chapter 3. We are continuing our study. And we saw uh, in chapter 2, again, the, uh, some of the challenges and the things that can get our eyes off of the Savior. And then as we came into chapter 3, we've seen now uh, two different blessings that John has brought to mind. First of all, he said there's the blessing of a place to belong. And that is the Father's love. And look at the wonderful Father's love. And look at how uh, He loves His children. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed. And aren't you glad for that love? And what a blessing. And as we uh, think on His love, how can we ever begin to doubt His goodness? And then in verse number 2, He says, uh, Now are we the sons of God? And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when uh, He shall appear, we shall be like Him. Well, we shall see him as he is. We have a reason to look forward to that day. And, uh, and we saw that uh, those who, uh, every man, verse 3, every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. And that's where we left off last week, that uh, we look forward to that day of Christ's coming. We look forward to seeing our Savior. And we have the promise not only of a place to belong here, but of a place that we're going. We have a promise for eternity. And praise the Lord for that. And uh, eternal life. And we saw that it's a promise for today. And it's a promise for someday. It's a dual promise there. And how exciting that that is to be able to know that blessing and be able to have that blessing. Now today, we come to the third blessing that John is going to uh, really highlight for these believers. And that is the provision for renewal. Or as I've called it uh, here, the blessing of a new nature. The blessing of a new nature. What a blessing to know that I'm not bound in the old nature any longer. What a blessing to know that that nature with which we were born, that sin nature that has passed from Adam to his sons to every single son uh, down through the course of history and that passes from every father to every child, that that nature that we're born with, that sin nature, that that's not the end of the story or it does not have to be the end of the story, but that there is another nature that we can have. And that as Christians that we have been promised and then we have been granted a new nature by Almighty God. What an opportunity to have that nature. And we'll see that here this morning. I'll invite you if you can and uh, you are willing to stand with me one more time this morning. I know we've been up and down a little bit, but it's good because now you'll be ready to sit for a little bit. Amen? First uh, John chapter 3 and beginning in verse number 4, it says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil." Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth righteousness is uh, doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Father, I pray that you would help us as we study today. I pray that you would give uh, the words that need to be said, the thoughts that need to be there, and then, Lord, help them to be uh, communicated clearly enough that you're able to take those and apply them to each heart and work in them uh, in a mighty way. Lord, we love you. We thank you for it. We thank you in advance for how you'll use the message today. Lord, help us as we go uh, throughout our week, throughout our lives, that we would operate by this new nature which you have promised and which you have given 
to everyone who knows you as Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. These verses are probably among some of the most misunderstood verses in all of the Bible. And uh, because of that, they are probably among the most misused verses uh, in the Scripture. And yet, when we understand this passage as the New Testament readers would have understood it, and when we understand the passage uh, really as it is given and as it is written, we find that it is a powerful statement that is being made here by the Apostle. We find that it's really not uh, something that needs to be of great confusion, but rather it really reveals and explains uh, much of the Christian life. As we've seen the different blessings that are highlighted so far in chapter 3, we've seen that the Christian life is to be an exciting life, a joyful life, that there's a reason to, uh, to, to keep pressing on and pressing forward. And I'm glad we didn't end at chapter 2 and say, yes, we're in the family of God, we're children of God, but look at all these things that have a tendency to distract us. But rather we can say, yes, there are those. Some are without and some are within. But the reality is there's a whole lot of blessings that make it worth pressing on in our relationship with God. That make it worth it in the middle of 2020 as we look at uh, a culture that is, is shifting and uh, things that are changing and often confusing to many. As we look at uh, all of the polarization that is going on within our society. As we look at all of the uh, adjustments that were being made all the time. And maybe you say, you know, this year just seems like a bad year. It seems like a useless year. What's the point of a year like 2020? And we saw in Sunday school it's a time to give thanks. Amen. But the reality is, in the midst of a year like this, uh, what is it that drives us to keep pressing forward and keep walking in a deeper and deeper relationship with our Savior? And I believe really that uh, it's a right and and a perfect timing. Certainly wasn't where I would have anticipated coming uh, for this, but really a right timing. God has brought us here to 1 John chapter 3 because it really reveals to us here's all these blessings. So keep pressing on. Don't get weary. Don't get discouraged. Don't get down, out, and depressed and think it's not worth it. It is worth it. There are blessings, and it really doesn't matter if it's a difficult year. It's worth pressing on for the cause of Christ. Don't quit, but keep on keeping on. And that's what John's telling to these believers, and ultimately, uh, by way of application, what he's telling us then for this time in our lives. Uh, I wonder this morning, first of all, have you received the new nature? Do you know that you've been born into the family of God? Has there been a moment in your life that you can go to and say, at that moment, in that moment of decision, I chose to trust Jesus as my Savior? And if so, then the Bible says at that moment is when you receive the new nature that is given by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. If you've never had that moment, a time where you made that decision based on the Word of God and the understanding of the Word of God, the Bible says, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so it's not just a decision that I would like to know God or a decision I would like to uh, know something about Him, but a decision on the Word of God to trust Christ as your Savior, as the Bible says. But if you've made that decision, then you can know this morning you have that new nature. Have you ever known you have it? And wondered where it is. Have you ever known, I know I have a new nature, but it just doesn't seem like I'm operating there on that level very well. It just seems like there's a lot that's going on in my life, and I'm struggling in these areas. And it doesn't seem like some of the things that are supposed to be so exciting about the Christian life really are right now. 
And sometimes it's just that we're just dry. I, I think we kind of understand, if you've been saved very long, you understand the idea of that. We're just spiritually dry, and, and we need to get going again. We need the Lord to work again. Sometimes it's that we're carnal, and uh, we've gotten away from God in some areas, and there's no longer that same joy and that same excitement that there ought to be. And we get to the place where we have the new nature, but we're not really operating in it. So I ask you this morning, number one, do you have it? Number two, are you living consistent with that new nature? Are you living consistent with who you are in Christ rather than who you were before Christ? The Bible tells us, uh, Paul said to the Corinthian church, such were some of you. There's a way we used to be before we were saved, and it ought to be different now that we are saved, if you're saved this morning. And so the reality is we need to be living consistent with that which has been given by God, that new nature. I want to examine this morning four truths of the passage which John is trying to make clear to these believers so they understand how to live in light of the new nature that we've been given. First of all, he's going to point out to them in verse number four, the presentation of sin. What is sin? And he's going to define it. He says, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. Uh, we think, first of all, we've heard a lot in recent days about the infectious rate of a virus. And uh, I thought about that as I was thinking through this message and this that, jo uh, that John is laying out to these believers. And of course, we know the infectious rate of sin. The infectious rate of sin is 100%. The reality is we are all sinners by nature. We were born that way. We are also all sinners by choice. We have chosen to sin within our lives and chosen to follow that old nature and uh, that, that sin nature. And so sin's infectious rate, the Bible tells us all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that's why no one can come into heaven apart from knowing Jesus as their Savior. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. There's only one way, and that's the reason, because everybody's been infected by the virus of sin. Everyone's been affected by the reality of sin in their life. Sin's infectious rate is 100%. But then we see, really in this passage, sin's insidious reality. The reality of what sin really is, is pointed out to us here. He says... Whosoever committeth sin, now notice the word transgresseth, also the law. That word transgresseth, it literally means lawlessness. A teacher was standing in her class and she asked the students, she said, does anybody know what sin is? One little boy raised his hand and she called on him and he said, teacher, I think sin is anything that you like to do. Sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it? I mean, and there's an element of that that's true. What we like to do in that old nature is pretty much all sin. And uh, there is a, a draw toward that which is wrong, that which is sinful. Sin is really just that lawless attitude, that lawless idea. Uh, sin is a lack of subjection. Uh, lawlessness here uh, would be the idea, sin is an insubjection to God, which causes me to take my own way. And so sin is not only, when it says the transgression of the law, it's not only, and these New Testament believers would have understood this, the giving of laws that have then been broken. Now certainly that is there. 
But the Bible tells us there was sin even before the law. Uh, there was sin before Moses was actually given law. And uh, because of that, there was a law that is written on the heart, the Bible tells us. And so there's sin. It's not only, well, these are the revealed laws, and if I just don't directly break one of those, then I'm okay. And we can't even do that. But it's not only that, it's also what we know to be right. It's uh, uh, when we go against the directing and leading of the Holy Spirit of God, what we're doing is saying, I'm not going to submit to your way. Instead, I'm going to do my way. And that's a lawless manner of living. And so this lawlessness, this sin which is being defined, it's much deeper than just only the well, that's what the law says, so I'm just going to break it. It's much more than that alone. It is a lawless attitude, an attitude of insubjection to God. Sin, then, really is self-will. And that's what John's kind of boiling this down to. Sin is that self-will, I'm going to do what I want to do, I'm going to do it my way, and that's the way that it needs to be. Uh, so he says, he committeth sin, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. Why? For sin is the transgression of the law. It is that lawlessness. It is that lack of submission to God. That's why I ask you, first of all, this morning, as we get into the passage, is your heart attitude one of submission to God in every area? And you know, that's an easy question to give a quick answer to. But it's a hard thing to really live out in the daily realities of our life. You know, sometimes we even know something that the Bible specifically says, and we have a hard time following it, even when we think in the moment, I know I shouldn't do or think or say whatever I'm about to do, think or say. I know I should not, but you know, this time I'm just going to go ahead. That's taking my way. It's a lack of submission to God. Or we think, you know, I know I ought to. I know that God's will would be for me to do such and such, but I'm not going to. It's a lack of submission to the will of God. And the reality is, when we put it on that level, we're reminded how frequently we transgress the law. How frequently that we are uh, needing to come in repentance to God. How frequently that each one of us takes our own way and goes to, in the uh, direction that seems right unto us the end thereof are the ways of death. And so uh, the presentation of sin we see here in verse number four. And then we see the purpose of the Savior in verse number five. He says, and you know that he, Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins and in him is no sin. We see here, first of all, the purpose of his manifestation. It's to take away our sins. If you remember back to John's gospel, you remember at the beginning, John 1.29, he is recording the words of John the Baptist. And in John 1.29, John the Baptist makes that uh, incredible and wonderful proclamation. He says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. What a proclamation, amen? Can you imagine being there uh, at that day and watching John baptizing out there and, uh, you know, maybe uh, uh, all the things that are taking place and some of the Pharisees over here are watching and we know they weren't real happy with John either and, and all this is swirling and taking place there and then here comes Jesus and he calls this out for all to know, behold the Lamb of God and he reveals his purpose, he's there to take away the sins of the world. Oh, what a truth. What a reality. But, but, but here we see uh, that in John 1.29, uh, we see that the Lamb was coming for the purpose of completing 
the redeeming work. He was coming for the purpose of the redemption. And it's a very general statement. It's a broad statement. He's coming to deal with the sins of the whole world. He's coming that he might take them all away. Uh, This dealt with every sin of every man who would ever live. In dealing then with the sins of the world, the means was provided and the means was the sacrificial lamb of God himself. So when John the Baptist called it out, behold the lamb of God. Behold the means for which the sins of all of mankind will be paid for. What a statement. What a reality that all the sins of mankind, do you realize someone doesn't go to hell just because they're a sinner? That sin was dealt with. They go to hell because they rejected Jesus as their Savior. And they are then separated from God. Now, sin is the reality. It's the reason of why they would need to be separated. But, but the, uh, the reason of damnation, it's they don't go there because their sin was never dealt with. It was on the cross. Even the lost man who goes to hell for all of eternity, his sin was dealt with on the cross, but he rejected the payment. and said, no, I'll take it on myself. He dealt with the sins of all of the world. What an incredible God we have. What an incredible reality of his ability to deal with those sins. He took away the sins of the whole world. We serve an incredible God. We serve a God who loves the whole world and is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come in repentance. But notice the difference here. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, where we just read. You know that he was manifested. Here's why he came. To take away our sin. It's a big difference from John 129. John 129, we're dealing with general, the sins of the whole world. Now, as John writes his epistle, he brings it down to home. Yes, he dealt with the sins of the whole world at Calvary, but now he's dealing with our sins individually. Aren't you glad God doesn't just say, I'll deal with the world as one? but then that he takes the time as each individual comes to him to meet and to deal with that person individually. That the God of heaven will take the time to interact with each person who comes to him in repentance. That he's promised to hear the prayer of repentance and to respond to it. What an incredible God. Not only can he come as the Lamb of God and deal with the sins of the whole world, but he also loves each person in that world enough to deal with their sins. And here John is writing to these New Testament believers and he's saying, hey, remember, yes, he's the God that dealt with all of it generally. But he's also the God who loves you personally. He's dealt with your sin personally. And this is something that he, this is why he came, this is why he was manifested. This is why God came in the flesh. So that he could reveal to us, yes, himself to die on the cross and deal with all of it, but also so that he could manifest, show himself to us, that he might deal with us individually. He's come to deal with our sins and take away our sins. It's a powerful statement. It's an incredible statement that John is making here of the love of God and the reality of who he is. And and this deals with the specific, this deals with the narrow idea instead of the broad. In dealing with the breaking of the bondage of sin, the means then, the means of dealing with all the sin of the world is the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. He was the sacrificial lamb. But now we find here, the means is not the lamb of God. He was the one who dealt with it at the cross. 
Now it is the Spirit of God which He gives to us, which He sends to us. And so the, the Spirit of God, as we understand further in John 16, but it's the Spirit of God which He gives. It's the Spirit of God which brings this new nature and which is, is the breaking of that bondage of sin. And so on the cross was dealt with the guilt of sin, but now as He deals with each of us individually, He deals with the bondage of sin in our own lives. That no longer are we bound in sin. The Bible really gives the picture that before Christ, we are married to sin. We have no option but to sin. We are bound to it. We are chained in it. And we cannot but sin. But then when we come to know Christ as Savior, we're divorced from the sin, and now we're married to Christ. Now we can still sin. There's still a free will. But we are no longer bound in it. We no longer have to. Now we sin because we just simply choose to against that which is in that new nature. So this deals with the bondage of sin. On the cross was the guilt, but personally the Holy Spirit deals with that bondage. So the new nature then in that new birth is made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. So here he says this is why he was manifested. Yes, so that he could deal at the cross with the guilt of sin and take away the sins of the world, but also so that beyond the cross, he could deal with you personally, he could give you his Holy Spirit personally, and he could take away your sin, our sin, on a personal level, dealing with that bondage of sin, dealing with that habitual sinning of life, so that he could change us. A real Christian, then, is one who has been born again and has a new life and a new nature and is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and has now learned to hate that sin which he loved and enjoyed previously. That's what John's writing. He came and he lived and he died and he rose again and now he's speaking with us and he's working with us by the power of his spirit even though he's seated at the right hand of the Father and he is dealing with that bondage of sin. And you can be set free from it. And he gives you a new nature that's made alive in the new birth. And when that new nature comes to life, you're not the same anymore. And when that new nature comes to life, you now hate that which you used to love. And you now love that which you used to hate. Everything changes when the new nature comes to life. And so John is, is setting the stage really for these next verses that he's about to launch into. And, and he gives us here the purpose of his manifestation, the purpose of the Savior, and then the purity of his person at the end of the verse. He says for, um, excuse me, verse 5, and in him is no sin. And, and it's just a, another reminder. When he came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, there was no sin in him. And today as he's seated at the right hand of the Father, there's still no sin in him. And over and over and over and over in the Scripture, we read this reality of the holiness of our God in whom there is no sin, and that we're to live like him. And so he has already told us, if we uh, were to back up to verse number three from last week, every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, remember, even as he is pure. Now he reveals to us in him there is no sin, or reminds, really, not reveals, he reminds us in him there is no sin. We are to strive to live that life of purity. And so we see here this morning, First of all, the presentation of sin. He defines it. Secondly, the purpose of the Savior. He has come that he might deal not just with sin generally in the whole world, but specifically in our lives. Not just that he can remove the guilt of sin for eternity, but that he can remove the power, the bondage of sin today. 
Then we see that John moves on as he moves into some of these verses that if we uh, are not careful are easy to misunderstand. And he says here uh, in these next few verses, he's going to give us the purity of the saint. He tells us we'll purify him as he is. And, and then he tells us in him there is no sin. Now he's going to deal with how does this happen then? We get this new nature. And when we get this new nature, when we're born again, when we trust Christ as our Savior, what does our life look like now? And how does it change? And, and what happens? And, and, and how does it all take place? And so first of all, verse number six, he's going to tell us about the freedom that is acquired. In the moment of salvation, we recognize the reality that the Son shall set you free indeed. And here, he's going to tell us, here's a freedom that is acquired when we receive this new nature. Verse number six, he says, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Now, a lot of people have come to these verses and said, well, I thought I was saved. But yesterday, I messed up. And since I sinned yesterday, I must not really be saved. Because if I sin, I've never even seen him. I've never been saved. You know, one interesting thought is that those who would use this verse to say that you can lose your salvation or these verses, the Bible tells us really here that somebody who sins, not that they've lost their salvation, if you were to misuse them in this manner, it wouldn't say that they've lost their salvation. It would say they never were saved. Even here, you don't find a passage, you can lose your salvation. You can lose maybe that you were tricked into thinking you had salvation, but you can't lose salvation. Aren't you glad that the Bible is not saying we can lose our salvation? We'll deal with that here in just a second. Uh, But before salvation, here's what he's saying, we were bound in sin. Before salvation, we had no option, we had no choice. We were sinning on a regular basis. And so we see here this freedom that is acquired is that we now have the freedom to not sin. Um, We now have the freedom to make a decision. We now have the freedom to choose to live for Christ. We now have the freedom to be able to move forward in this area. Uh, So these verses do not speak of somebody who sins once. The Bible does speak of that in 1 John. You'll probably remember if you go back over to chapter 2 and verse number 1, we find that idea. And remember what he said, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The Bible's the best commentary on the Bible, amen? One chapter ago, John said, listen, now as believers, when you sin, if you sin, praise God, we have an advocate with the Father. Praise God, our advocate is Jesus Christ. He's the righteous one. Praise God, we have a good advocate. We have a good defense attorney there. And so he's dealing with the fact that as Christians, we will sin. And he deals with that in 1 John chapter 2. Now he comes over to 1 John chapter 3 and he says, if you sin, you've never seen the Father. So either he's completely contradicting himself and uh, maybe, you know, he's had too much sleep and too many days since he wrote chapter 2 and now he starts chapter 3. But the problem is it's all one letter. When we have chapter headings, John didn't. He didn't write chapter 2 and then come back a month later and write chapter 3 and forget what he was writing. And it was guided by the Holy Spirit. Amen? So it can't be conflict. So what is it? This is where in the first century church, if they would have, as typically would have been done, they would have gathered around and they would have heard the reading of this letter out loud by the pastor of the church 
from the Apostle John. And they would have understood this letter because they would have heard it explained and read to them in the Greek text. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar by any means, but they would have heard the Greek text and they would have heard a difference in the way that the verbs were, the verb tenses. In chapter 2, in verse number 1, we find that the word sin is in the aorist tense, which simply means this, it is a specific action at a specific point in time. So if there is a point in time where a person makes a wrong decision and they choose to sin, then they can come and get right with God because they have an advocate with the Father. So when we fall, when we fail, when we sin in the Christian life, in that moment that we make a wrong decision, we can come, we have an advocate. Then as we come over to chapter 3, and verses 6 and some of these verses here, uh, we find that uh, verse, in verse number 6 specifically, this word sinneth is in the present continuous tense, which refers to an action that is being carried on on a regular basis. It would be like our idea or word of habit. So we might read this word, this in the English, if we were to uh, understand it, the, the wording of what it's saying. Whosoever, uh, uh, whosoever abideth in him sinneth habitually not. In other words, their life is not characterized by a habit of sinful living. Rather, their life is characterized by a habit of righteous living. They have a love of righteousness, a love of right things. They want to please God in their life. Now let me also say, the Bible deals in Hebrews chapter 12 with the fact that we do have weights and sins which so easily beset us. And all of us have some things that can weigh us down, that are not necessarily sin, but they can stop us from being productive in the Christian life and lead into sin. We also all have some sins that we are especially tempted by and are especially easy for us to fall into. And sometimes we call those habitual sins. And it might be something where you say, you know, Pastor, I've been to the altar about that. I've gotten it right with God. Every revival meeting, it seems like I get it right again. Does it mean when I come to 1 John chapter 3, verse number 6, I'm not saved and I've never been saved if I have some sin in my life that I'm really struggling with? That's not what it means. What it means is this. When we are just habitually going and living as we did before we were saved, we are happy in sin. We have no desire for any righteousness. We are just, our life is just characterized by sinful living. In other words, if there's never been any change at all, then we have to come back and examine and say, wait a minute, I may not have ever been saved at all. Because when there's a new nature, there's a change. I've seen it even in children, and you probably have too. There can be a change. You know, I used to hear uh, some of these types of passages preached and, and maybe at camp or something like that. And I would think and I would hear this idea of there has to be this big change. And I was saved when I was five. And I don't know, maybe my parents saw a change, but I don't remember a major change of life. I mean, it wasn't like I was robbing banks, killing people and drinking alcohol. And all of a sudden I said, no more of that. I'm stopping. I mean... You know, at five, I grew up in church. I don't really know what the big change was. 
But I do know this, I was saved from where I would have been. There's a big change from where I would have gone and been. And maybe you're here this morning, and I say that to say this, and you're a, a young person or somebody who's been saved a long time, saved at a young age, and you say, all right, we come to a passage like that. What if I don't recognize, because I was a young person, a major change of life? Okay, is there a change in desire from desiring that which is sinful? That would be an element there, an element of being able to look at that and understand that uh, from a younger perspective or being saved at a younger time. But here's the other reality. Sometimes somebody will get saved when they're a little older. They'll get saved when they're 20 and 25 and, and never really known anything of the things of God, and it's really just that which is the desires of their own heart that they've been living for. And you know what I've found? There's always, when there's true salvation, true repentance, a major change of life. It doesn't mean they were doing really bad things and they stopped doing them. It means their desire changed completely from that which gratifies me and makes me happy to that which pleases and glorifies the Father. And that's really what we can boil it down, what John's saying here. Listen, he that sinneth, he that's all just about himself. Remember the definition he just gave us of sin, lawlessness, all about our own desires, all about our own way, all about our own self-will and selfishness. He that just has a self-will and he's trying to just get his own way. And by the way, people use Christianity that way. They use uh, uh, even a walk with God that way. Well, I'm going to uh, pray this prayer so that I don't have to go to hell only. And, uh, and by the way, some say with fear, the Bible says. But the reality is that it's not just a fire insurance and there has to be a repenting and a turning. And somebody might say, well, you know, if I go to church, a lot of people listen to what I say and a lot of people will, uh, you know, they really tell me nice things about myself and, and I'm really a good teacher and they can teach a Sunday school class. They can do all these things. And we know some will because Jesus said there's going to be a day where he's going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And they're going to say, but Lord, we prophesied in your name. Hey, we preached, we taught Sunday school classes, we did these things. But if they never truly repented, if it was really about, I'm going to teach that class because it makes me feel good. Now, I understand there's a little bit of a line here. <laughs> you got to understand, we're trying to define what he's saying. If it's all about self-will and me, then I need to stop and say, wait a minute. Lord, number one, am I truly saved? And if I am, then I've gotten very carnal. And I'm not living in that new nature. I'm living in the old. <clears throat> in the old. I'm living like an unregenerate person. I'm living like somebody who doesn't even know Christ as their Savior. Because it's all about what I want and nothing about what glorifies you. So here, Paul, uh, excuse me, John really brings this down to uh, you know, where the rubber meets the road. There's a freedom that's acquired. We no longer have to live in that bondage of sin. And not only do we not have to, we should not, because we've been set free in the new nature in Christ. We see the purity of the saint. First of all, the freedom acquired. Secondly, the fruit assessed. Verse number seven he says, little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. So we can assess the fruits of righteousness. So he says, in the same manner, the person who is habitually living a life that's filled with sin, it's all about self-will, then that person is not living in the new nature, and they need to question, do they even have it? But the person who is living a life habitually 
one, uh, bringing glory to God. That's the desire of their life. And none of us are perfect. We're not talking about sinless perfection and never having a time where we make a selfish decision. We all do, amen? Well, I do every once in a while. But the reality of it is that God is saying to us, look, the, the people, you can judge them by their fruits, the Bible says. Look, there's going to be a desire for righteousness. There's going to be a desire for right things. When you're saved and that change comes and you're living surrendered to the Holy Spirit of God and you're living in this new nature, now your desires change. By the way, he gives us the desires of our heart, the Bible says. And so he's the one who places the desires there for the believer. And when we're walking in Christ and we're walking right with the Holy Spirit of God and he has control of our life, that desire to please God only grows. And so there's a desire to please him. There's a habitual element of our life that is characterized by trying to live a life pleasing to him. That's the desire of our heart. And so he says, look, if there's no desire to please God and it's only to do whatever makes you happy, you better question this thing. You better make sure you have the new nature. And if you have a great desire to serve God and to bring glory to him, and it's not about what brings you ha- makes you happy, then that's something you can look at and you can say, you know, that gives confidence that I can see the markers of the Holy Spirit of God in that new nature in my life. By the way, that's a good thing. Have have you ever been around somebody that can't figure out if they're saved and they're just always nervous about maybe they've lost it or they didn't say a prayer right or they didn't? And God gives us a few places in Scripture we can come to and say, hey, I have this desire to please God. I have this desire to glorify Him. It's not a desire that saves us. We understand that. But I made the decision to receive Christ. My life has changed. I now have this desire to please Him. I can look at this and say that I can have confidence that I can be controlled by and walking in the Holy Spirit, that means I'm saved because I've been given this new nature. And so there are some markers along the way that we can look at. This word, doeth, in verse 7 is in that same present uh, continuous tense. It's the same idea. It's a life that is habitually lived in this kind of a manner. So the fruit can be assessed. And then we see verse number 9. If you skip down to there, it says, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Here we see fruit that is abounding. If we were to read it, uh, maybe this way would help. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit uh, sin, does not practice sin. So again, it's this habitual nature. For his seed remaineth in him, that's the Holy Spirit, and he cannot sin, or it would literally be cannot be sitting, that continual nature again, because he is born of God. So justification is a forensic act by God by which we are declared free of guilt. That's what justification is. But regeneration, what John's dealing with here, is the imparting of the new nature in the power of the Holy Spirit of God, which changes our very desires, our very attractions. It just changes everything about the person. Because we're no longer who we were. That's who we used to be. But now that we know Christ as Savior and we've been given a new nature, we are made new. Literally, the Bible tells us we're regenerated, regened. We are made into a whole new person because that new nature is made alive inside of us. What a joy. What a thrill. He tells us here then that there ought to be fruit that's abounding. How does that happen? It happens as we deal with the sin in our life. As we deal with not being sinning on a regular basis, habitually. I don't know much about gardening. I don't know much about 
uh, fruit trees. But I did read something this week. So if it's wrong and you know a lot about fruit trees, just figure that the book is wrong. Amen? But they tell me in the book, the thing I read, it says that uh, in California some years ago, they went from one kind of an orange to another kind of an orange that they wanted to grow. And uh, I don't even remember the names of them, but I'm guessing with any fruit tree, it's basically the same that you can adjust. And so what they did was they took a, uh, a farmer might, would take, maybe he had uh, 40 acres of oranges out there. And they said he would take 20 of those acres and they would basically pull the trees. They would just cut all the branches and they would destroy them uh, and they would just cut everything that bore any fruit. Then they would cut into the bark and they would uh, implant some shoots that were from that new kind of an orange that they wanted to grow. And you know as well as I that that's called grafting. They grafted in a different kind of tree into those trees that were already established and already growing. And, but they would only use 20 acres because they wanted to have some crop in the meantime from that old kind of orange. And so then they'd give it time and those 20 acres would begin to grow and they'd begin to blossom. And before long, because that which had been grafted in was now that which was bearing fruit, they would begin to bear this new kind of orange. And over here on their other 20 acres, they'd still be growing the old oranges. So when the new oranges got to the place where they were producing well, as they needed to be, then they would do the same thing to the other half of their vineyard and, uh, or their farm. And they would do that so that they could be growing all 40 acres of the kind of oranges that were bigger, better, and, and what they wanted to grow. They say that if you go out and you were to walk around with a farmer and you said, but don't they ever grow the old kind of orange? He would tell you, no, they never grow the old kind of orange because the new kind has been grafted in. That's all they'll produce. And they say if you were to walk around, you would find some places where down on the trunk of that tree, a new shoot has begun to grow. And a farmer, when he sees that, if he is a, a, a carer of that uh, you know, farm or vineyard or whatever you call oranges, he would watch that new shoot starting to come out of there and immediately he'd grab shears or a knife or something and he'd chop it off. You say, why would he do that? And the reason is, that shoot is below the graft line. If it's allowed to grow, it'll begin to produce the old fruit. And if it's allowed to grow and produce the old fruit, then it'll actually pull the resources of the tree away so that there's not going to be as much resources to grow the new fruit. Isn't that a picture of the Christian life? The problem is this, we start letting branches grow down below the graph line and all of a sudden our energy and our time and our resources of life get spent trying to grow out that old fruit and before long we're not producing the fruit that is righteousness. We're not producing the fruit that brings glory to God. We can still produce after that old nature if we're not careful. So you know what we have to do? We have to get out that old pruning knife we have to use it on ourselves, liberally. We've got to walk into our life, so to speak, as that farmer would walk amongst those trees. We have to look with a careful eye and say, what are the things in my life that are beginning to grow that are below the graph line? What are the things of the old nature that are starting to take hold and take root? Because you know when they're just a little twig, it's easy to just walk over with a knife or a pair of shears and there it is. It's done. No big deal. It hurts maybe a little bit uh, in our life because we have to do some surgery. We've got to cut it off, and, and it hurts for a moment, but, but it's not really a big deal. But you know, you let that thing become a branch for a couple of years. 
Now you've got to go get the chainsaw out. Now it's hard to cut off. And now you've been growing the wrong kind of fruit for a while. You know what John's saying to these believers? You have a new nature, and because of that, you can produce a whole new kind of fruit. And God's designed it that way. And it is fruit that will be abounding. And you know that tree doesn't grow that fruit by effort. It grows the fruit just by the resources that are given in life. And we understand, back to the picture of the vine, we're just the branches. He's the vine that we're plugged into, we're grafted into. So it's not our effort that produces all this fruit. It is our effort that produces the fruit below the graph line. And here's what really saying to us, look, how much fruit you can produce is going to require you to be a Christian who's not living in habitual sin characterized by sin. You're going to have to come to those parts of your life that are that old nature, and you're going to have to chop them off. You're going to have to watch the base of your life, the old things that want to creep in, and you're going to have to keep an eye on them so you can get them cut off quickly while they're still small, while they're still removable, because by the time they become a branch, you've got a problem. It's really an incredible picture of what the Christian life is. And John here is saying, listen, whosoever is born of God doth not commit. They're not living that life. They're not just sinning on a regular basis. His seed remaineth in him. It's that growing picture. It's because the seed is right now. It's been grafted into the right uh, vine. It's what is needed. He cannot, we can't produce that old life anymore. That's not what we're supposed to produce. So produce the new life and it'll be fruit that abounds. And then I see finally today the problem for the sinner. First of all, the problem of association. Verse number nine says, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot uh, sin because he is born of God. I'm sorry, I was supposed to back up to verse number eight there. Verse number eight, he that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. He that committeth sin is of the devil. We got a problem. Maybe you're here this morning and say, you know, Pastor, I don't know if there's ever been a moment that I've received Christ as my personal Savior. You know, we don't like to think about it this way, that we would be children of the devil. The world tells us that all people that have been born are children of God. It's called the universal fatherhood of God. Maybe you've heard that. The reality is the Bible teaches the exact opposite. Here, John writes, Jesus taught the same thing, but here John writes and says there's two families. There's a family that's after the devil. That's where we're born naturally. Then there is a family that is after God. That's the family where we are born again into that family. If we've never been born again, the Bible says we're after that family of the devil and his works we will do. There's the problem of association that we belong in the wrong family. We belong in the wrong place. He deals with that in verse number 10 as well as he says, in this the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. We see here there are these two families. There are these families that are designed, and God uses the picture of families. There's a family that loves righteousness and loves pleasing God and produces this new kind of fruit that's not after their own nature, and that's the family of God. Then there's another group he pictures again as a family. That's the family that loves unrighteousness. That's the family that hates that which is of God. That's the family which is about what makes me happy and has a self-will rather than a will to please and glorify God. And that family is of the devil. He says, here's how the family is manifest or made known. 
about whether or not we love righteousness and whether or not we love the brother, we love uh, the people of God. And then he tells us, finally, not only is there the problem of association, but there's the problem of annihilation. Verse number 8, the middle of the verse. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. All the works of the devil, the works of sinfulness, and all of its bondage, he came to destroy. And you know, Jesus dealt with all of that at the cross. He destroyed the bondage. He destroyed the power of sin on the cross. But the day is coming one day in eternity eternity, where he's going to deal with the devil himself. And on that day, the Bible tells us that he's going to be cast into that lake of fire for the final time. And he will never be seen or heard from again. You know, I'd like to have a front row seat for that moment. I hate the devil. I hate all that he destroys and the families he destroys and the lives he destroys and the pain and the the filth that he brings in. Wouldn't it be something to see him dealt with eternally? But you know, the part I don't want a front row seat for is what's called the great white throne judgment, where all those that are of the family of the devil who rejected the salvation of Christ will be judged and eternally damned, eternally separated from God. You say, but God's a loving God. Yes, he is. That's why he provided a means and a way of salvation. That's why he gave his own life as the Lamb of God to die in your place and deal with the guilt of your sin. It's also why he was manifested that he might deal specifically with your sin and give you freedom from the bondage even now. But it's also being born into a new family, the family of God, and allowing you to be able to be in heaven with him for all of eternity rather than separated from him in that lake of fire for all of eternity. I ask you this morning, have you received the new nature? Have you had a moment where you've made that decision that you can go to and say, I have confidence to base all my eternity on the decision I made to trust Christ as my Savior? Do you have a moment you're that confident in? If you say, yes, I do, then I ask you this, are you living consistent with the new nature which he gave you in that moment of salvation? Are you bearing the right fruit and bringing glory to God? Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Are we doing it this morning? Father, we love you.